Hey friends, welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. It is the final episode of our season. This season flew by and I really enjoyed this one. I mean, I enjoyed all, all the seasons, but this one in particular where we've taken just a broader look at homesteading and this Old Fashioned On Purpose mindset and really expanded it out into how it applies to our culture as a whole. It's been good for me. It's been refreshing um, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. So I usually like to do solo episodes for my final episodes each go around. And today I want to talk about something I've been thinking about a lot lately because let's face it, it's kind of consuming my life. Um, and I feel a little bit like a lone ranger in this problem. I, I know I'm not, it just kind of feels like it. So I wanted to share it with you today because I know whenever I feel like I'm the only one experiencing something, that's never true. Number one, number two, when I talk about it online, I always find lots of people to um, share ideas and commiserate with. So I, I think I would say, I know I would say that the season I'm in right now as a homesteader and especially as a homestead mom is my most challenging one to date. Um, and I'll explain why. So of course we started our homestead, uh, well, before we had children and then our homestead really started to grow when my first child was a newborn. And then as our, all our children were babies. So I've homesteaded through pregnancy and infancy and toddlerhood and all those stages. And I think that most people would assume that that would be the most challenging time of parenting to try to build a homestead. And, and, Maybe for some people that is indeed the case. It definitely wasn't easy. You know, you're carting bottles and sippy cups and extra diapers everywhere you go. And um, you're always interrupted when you're doing your chores and your tasks outside and you have to have strollers and all those things. So there's definitely an element of complication that comes into play. Um, and I assumed when they kind of got out of that high maintenance toddler stage that everything would get a lot easier. And it has on that realm. I don't have diaper bags and sippy cups anymore. And the kids can feed themselves. Heck, they even build their own fires and make their own dinners. So that's awesome. But now we have a new sort of challenge that no one really prepared me for because, I mean, I wouldn't have expected them to prepare me for it because I kind of live a unique life that not a lot of people um, partake in necessarily. So I underestimated what I'm trying to say is I underestimated how complicated it would be to homestead and have children in activities. Um, and that might sound so silly to some of you, but I feel like the toddler years were easier when we were just able to stay at home and, you know, they were happy playing on the floor with toys and there was nap times. And man, now that we're doing sports and we're doing 4-H and we're doing, um, you know, more social events, and of course town is a ways away from us, um, it's 30 minutes to the main towns sort of north and the south of us, at least. And then our little tiny town of Chugwater is a little bit closer, but still, you know, I'm on the road to get anywhere to see any sort of humans or do any sort of activity. Like it's eating up a lot of time. And I've kind of found myself a little disoriented feeling going, how do I do this? Like, how do I keep the gardens going and um, make the cheese and make the bread and the sourdough starters and all the things? How do I keep it going while I'm also shuttling kids back and forth. So I just wanted to talk through that today. Um, I don't have a big grand sweeping conclusion or solution for you. I just wanted to share some of the thoughts I've had around this topic. Um, and I feel like, I feel like this is maybe, well, I don't think it's talked about a lot in 
the homesteading realm for two reasons. Number one, a lot of the homesteaders who are um, creating content online, they're still in that younger child stage of life, which makes total sense because there's something about having a young family that just fits really well with homesteading. And that's, I mean, I was absolutely that person. You know, I had the babies, I had the toddlers and homesteading, <coughs> excuse me, homesteading just was a fit. So I think that's the case where a lot of folks haven't reached this stage yet, or at least the public homesteaders haven't. And then the other part is, you know, I see a lot of um, homestead families talk about how they're very much against outside activities for their kids. Um, or they are very, very limited. They just don't do it. Or they're like, we'd never do sports. Or we'd never do 4-H. Or we'd never do this or that. And that's fine. And I think every family, of course, is so different. And everyone, every situation is so unique. But it kind of leaves someone like me. I feel like I'm in limbo. Like, I feel like I'm in limbo a lot with a lot of the, the places I end up in life. I don't f- quite fit into this box, but I don't quite fit into that box either. And that's where I'm at with this. Just because I know for me as a child, I was homeschooled, right? You know, so I had a similar upbringing in terms of I wasn't in public school. But the extracurricular activities that I participated in were really valuable to me. And my parents didn't do a lot. Like we didn't do sports and my mom was not a fan of running back and forth into town all the time. But the ones that I did do really changed my life. Um, I did 4-H and I did some volunteering and I had little jobs when I was in high school and junior high. And those really shaped me. And so as my children have gotten older... I've been really concerned about robbing them of those opportunities. I mean, of course, the homestead offers so much. There, you know, there's the responsibility and the chores and the experiences, and I don't want them to miss out on that. But I also know that, especially as they get older, they need more than just playing on the living room floor with toys all day long. They need interaction with peers. They need interaction with other adults. They need to learn skills that I potentially can't always teach them. I teach them a lot of things, but I can't teach them everything. And they just need to be out and about in our community. And so it's left me with this question of how the heck do I facilitate that while also keeping the homestead flowing? So, like I said, I don't have it figured out. Maybe in 10 years, I can do an episode on ABCs of managing a homestead with children. Um, but here's, here's how we're doing it right now imperfectly, of course, but here's what we're doing. So um, number one, we're pretty selective. I don't know about you, but I am absolutely overwhelmed at the amount of activities out there for children. And it's so funny to me, every time someone comes to me and tries to bring up the socialization issue, because my kids are homeschooled, you know, that's, in case you're not familiar, that's like the number one thing people always use um, to kind of clobber you. They're like, oh, you can't homeschool. Your kids won't be socialized. I'm like, darling, darling, listen, there are, there is too much socialization out there. There is so many options. Like it is not hard to find things to do. Even us, we live so isolated ish, you know, we have that our little town near us, but it's a tiny town of 175 people. And then our other towns are 30 minutes away. But even in that, there's so much out there. There's clubs and activities and sports and lessons Um, and the possibilities are endless. And I feel like a lot of my brain power goes into just figuring out really what's going to resonate with my kids and what we need to say no to. And saying no is hard for most of us anyway, especially me. I don't like saying no. No one does. It's extra hard when you have kids involved 
and helping your kids sort through what's a heck yes for them versus a, nah, maybe I, I guess I could do it, you know? And so, you know, kids, a lot of the time are going to want to say yes to everything or some children will depend, depending on their personality. So especially with mine, we have those conversations of, well, you could do soccer, you could do basketball, or you could do archery. You know, their first in- instinct is to go yes to all of them. And I'm like, let's talk about what you're really into and then go from there and helping them sort through those decisions is a little bit trickier. Um, it's tricky as an adult, but it's definitely trickier when you're 10 years old. So we've just been as picky as we can be. And I've been watching my kids to really try to hone in on what they are obsessed with. I know for me as a kid, the things I was obsessed with when I was young are the things that have carried me through into some of my greatest adventures as I've gotten older. And I think that's true for most humans. I just think that a lot of us are conditioned to ignore those natural inclinations as children, because we're taught that a lot of them aren't legitimate enough or official enough, and we're told to fit into the box of something else. But when I look back um, at the things I was inclined towards, creative writing was one, entrepreneurship was one, horses was one, rural living was one, all four of those things. When I shed cultural expectations as a young adult, I've gone back to those and they have brought me so much joy and fulfillment and success. It's crazy when I think about it. It's absolutely crazy. So I'm trying to see with my children, what are their underlying obsessions? What are they not only maybe good at, but they just naturally are interested in things that I don't have to remind them to practice things that they want to research and study and focus on without any pushing from me. And we're trying to hone in on that. Sometimes it's easier said than done though, right? Because kids go through stages and that's fine and they will change. And I definitely had things I was interested in for a year or two as a kid. And then I kind of fell off the wagon. That's fine. But, um, with mine, with my kids, it's just been that process of really watching and analyzing. So I guess that's one strategy. I hesitate to even call it that. That's one way I'm trying to manage this stage of life. Um, Another way that we're, I I don't want to say keeping the balls in the air because I've dropped a lot of balls this summer. Thankfully, most of them have been rubber balls, not glass ones. But another way we're kind of keeping the homestead running while also doing more kid activities is um, I've reduced the complexity of my homestead. You know, when I was, just staying at home with the toddlers. And I'm not discounting anyone in that stage of life. I know there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, But when I was home all day with them, it was a different vibe than when I'm in and out, you know, maybe like record coming to the office to record a podcast like I am right now. And then I have to go in the house and start supper, but then I have to go back outside and do this. And then maybe I have to run a kid to soccer in town real quick. So like that in and out, in and out, in and out, I have to craft the homestead activities um, to support that. So that means less super intense, uh, projects right now in this stage. So like I let my sourdough starter go dormant this summer. Actually, no, that's a lie. I flat out murdered the sourdough starter this summer. Okay. You guys side note here. A lot of people email me and ask me how to tell when your starter is bad. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you the top secret Jill Winger tip here. When it's pink, when it smells like rotting flesh and it has worms in it, you definitely know it's bad. How do I know this? Because that is what happened to my sourdough starter this summer. 
Uh, there was no question that that stuff was way too far gone to use. How I was able to create that scenario, uh, it was massive amounts of neglect. So it was not something that happened overnight. I had left the starter out on my kitchen counter in the summer heat for mm, maybe five weeks without feeding it, right? It had no fresh food to keep all the bacteria and yeast happy. So it died and then it, I don't even know what putrefied and I took, I, I was like trying to ignore it. You know how we like to do denial sometimes. So I was like washing dishes and I'd look at the jar and I'm like, just ignore it. And I, so I did that for six weeks. I'm telling you, it's all the dirty laundry in the story. It's just all out there. You probably are going to think so much less of me <laughs> after this. So I ignored the jar for six weeks when I finally was like, you've got to deal with this, Jill. You cannot ignore this problem in your life any longer. I opened the jar. It about knocked me over. It smelled so very horrible. So very horrible. And then as I started to scrape the putrefied sourdough starter out of the jar, I realized there were worms in it, like maggots. I don't know how they got in there. Well, they probably like a fly crawled under the lid. The lid was sort of on. I don't know. It was bad. It was real bad. So that is how you know your sourdough starter is no longer appropriate for use when it reaches that point. Other than that, though, sourdough starter is very resilient. But I'm telling you this very disgusting story so you know that I did not bake sourdough bread all summer. This summer was brutal. I can't remember if I told you this in a previous episode, but this summer was one of the hardest summers I think I've ever had in this uh, last 10 years, maybe. Not that anything was bad per se. It just, there was too many things happening. And, you know, people would say, well, cut some stuff out or say no. And all of the things that were happening weren't things I could really say no to. And when I had initially scheduled it out, they all looked like they fell into a nice little sequential order. But then once it started happening, once the summer started rolling, I realized uh, there was no sequence and they were all in a big wad of chaos. And so June, July, August were brutal. We had company and events. And of course, the soda fountain is crazy busy in the summer. And I had book the book come back for its second round of edits um, and 4-H and fair and horses and gardens. And it was wild, way, too, way more wild than I generally prefer. So I didn't do a lot of homesteading this summer. I did bare bones. We left the calf on the cow. I did not milk the cow. I did not make sourdough bread. I cooked very, very minimally. Mesa, my 12-year-old, cooked a lot. We had watermelon and like simple foods from the fridge for some of our summer meals. Um, and I was not homesteader extraordinaire this summer at all. And I, I just don't feel bad. Well, I, I felt bad at first because I'm like homestead or summer is the like prime time for us homesteaders. I have to utilize it. And then I realized it just had other things that were going to have to take precedence. So I think that's the other strategy. That was a lot of talking. I'm sorry. But in my roundabout way, I was trying to share that my other strategy is just I'm reducing or shifting the amount of homesteading I'm doing, or maybe just the complexity. We're still gardening and doing all that. Um, but it's not as focused in on it as it was 10 years ago when we had just started. And I talked about this, I believe the beginning episode of the season, this, it's okay for your homesteading to shift and to morph over the years. It doesn't have to look the exact same way it did at the beginning. And that's just a lesson I'm just reminding myself of over and over this year is it's okay for homesteading to be at the forefront sometimes and on the back burner other times that it doesn't mean that it's going away. It just means it's can move and vibe with all the different iterations of your life. Um, what, are, what are my other tricks? 
I don't know if that's the word. Um, oh, I will say one activity that I think at least for us, and this is subjective, so take it with a grain of salt, for us that has provided more bang for your buck than average with our kids has been 4-H. Um, and I mentioned this while we were at our fair in August. And so I was talking about fair on our Instagram stories and posting pictures. And a, a number of people asked me a lot of questions about 4-H because um, I know some areas it's not as prevalent. And so I wanted to share a little bit about that today, because if you are a homestead parent and you are like me, you want your kids to have some activities off the homestead, but maybe, you know, not seven days a week, just something that you can manage and keep in perspective. I think 4-H can be a really good fit. It's also very homeschool family friendly. So it fits really well into a family that's already homeschooling or is already minded um, in that way. So a lot of people are asking me, how do I start for each? How does it work? Well, does it work for me if I'm in the city? So I just kind of wanted to talk through that a minute because I feel like for us, it's been a good fit. Still occupies some time, but it's been a good fit. So for those of you who aren't familiar with it, 4-H is a kids club. I think it was founded, I should have looked it up, um, maybe the 40s or 50s in that era, could have been a little earlier, but it initially kind of started as a club for agricultural topics, but now it's expanded out to all sorts of different topics. But what it allows kids to do is really dig into a project. Um, I've become increasingly in favor of the project-based learning approach. I've been learning more about that recently. I'll share more about that project in another episode. Um, but 4-H is really project-based learning at its finest. It allows your kids to pick an area that they're interested in, whether that's sewing or baking or rocketry or livestock or horses, or you can do dog or cat 4-H or uh, I think there's pocket pet 4-H or all kinds. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, topics. And then they complete a project within a, a certain time frame. Usually there's a, a year or so. And then they have to complete a record book and do reports and presentations on it. Sometimes they compete. So it kind of hits all those buckets of you know, kids are practicing public speaking and, and communication skills. They're learning how to uh, invest into a specific topic area. They're learning how to write about it and to keep track of it. And like anything, you know, the amount of benefit you get from it depends on how much effort you put into it, but it's, it's really good. It's a really beneficial program. And so I did 4-H as a kid. Uh, Horse 4-H was my thing. Um, and I, by the time I graduated high school, I had a I don't know what you'd call it, a resume <laughs> this thick of all the leadership and volunteer and opportunities that I had been exposed to in 4-H. Like I had the most incredible college application ever. And it was all thanks to 4-H um, because you can really take it as big or as small as you'd like it to be. And so that's one activity locally that is a really great fit for our family. Our little town of 175 people has our own 4-H club and most towns will, even if you're in a city, um, that's not agricultural connected, you're going to probably be able to find clubs of some sort. And so all you have to do is, um, number one, find a club. I would recommend finding a club that is in line at least somewhat with the projects that your kids will be interested in. So you might have some clubs that like our, my club growing up was a horse 4-H club. So everyone in that club was a horse member and we did all horse activities. Our club now is really a general club. So we meet once a month. We have a, 
a meeting with like Robert's rules of order and we have a kid take minutes and we have a kid do the treasury report and we do volunteer and all that. But then each of the kids is kind of focused on their own project and we don't work on project topics necessarily in the meetings just because we're a small town and we have some a wide variety of interests. Um, I know if I go to the town north of us, I can find clubs that are specific towards like livestock kids, or maybe you have a, the food sciences club where all those kids hang out. So if you can find a club that kind of fits in with a topic your kids are going to want to learn about, because it really, really helps to have leaders who can guide you. Um, I will say, I love our club. It's just been a little extra challenging because there are not leaders in my club that know about certain projects. And my kids have decided to go a little bit eclectic. Like my son Bridger is insisted upon doing chicken 4-H, which y'all showing chickens is a thing. Like I feel pretty savvy with chickens. I mean, I've had them for a long time. We butcher them, we raise them, we, whatever. I know nothing. I know nothing about show chickens. Like I feel like a complete idiot at the chicken show. Like it's a whole vibe. Have you, have you watched the chicken people show on, I think it's on Netflix. Go watch that. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But anyway, Bridger wants to do chicken for it. He's in it two years now. Um, and I've had to learn him and I have had to learn together how to do that. Like watching videos of how to hold the chicken and what questions they'll ask you. And th there's this whole thing. If they have a certain chickens have the wrong color feather, they get disqualified in their breed class. And it's very, very, serious, this whole chicken showing situation. So, um, I am his leader in that realm because I don't have a chicken leader available to me in our club. So keep that in mind. If you go to a club that, that doesn't teach your child's area of interest, you will become the facilitator of that. That may or may not be a big deal. Um, for me, it's been a little more work than average, but it's still been worth it. Um, but within those projects, I know it's helped my kids learn more about animals. Of course, as animals are our point of interest, yours might be different. And the other thing that I really love about it, and this might, oh, this probably won't surprise you, but it gives them an opportunity to fail and fail in a way that I am not creating the boundaries someone else is. And as a homeschool mom, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a lot of things for my kids. I'm their teacher and I'm their mom and I am their coach in a lot of different aspects of life. So it's really nice for me to be able to have someone else that my kids can be accountable to. And so, you know, like this year, Mesa was working on her record book. She's definitely old enough to uh, be doing that on her own and being pay and pay attention to detail and pay attention to her spelling. And so, you know, as she was writing her stories and her project reports for her record book this fall, I took a page out of um, the Jess Leahy with the gift of failure. Remember that interview? I took a page out of that book and I said, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll help you if I need to. If you have a question, I'm here, but I'm not going to tell you what to say or what to write. It's all on you. And when she submits that, that'll be whoever judges the record book. They'll get to give her that feedback instead of me. And the same goes for like with how the kids care for their animals. Um, if they choose not to work with their livestock animal, then they're not going to do as well in the show ring. And it just creates those really natural learning experiences for the kids. And that's been some of the most invaluable lessons. And I've, especially with Mesa, because she's been doing it longer than Bridger, watching her go from her first year where she was 
not, not as motivated to, to work with, she had a goat the first year. So she wasn't as motivated to work with a goat. Like she took care of it, but I'd be like, you know what, if it, if it was me, I'd be out there walking him twice a day. And she's like, Oh, it's fine. And I'm like, okay. Uh, versus now she's doing a steer project. I, she just finished her third steer project this past summer, man, that kid, it has taught her how to be so much more motivated. She gets up often before we do. She bays her steers. She's walking her steers. She halter broke uh, her steer completely on her own this year. Um, and watching that sense of pride that has come from the independence and the subsequent success of those projects has been amazing. And I think any, any kid project potentially can provide that. But for us, 4-H has just been amazing. Um, the other thing I love about 4-H is, especially if you are in an animal project or you're related in some way or shape, some way, shape or form to your local fair, man, there's something about a county fair that is just so special. And I feel like it's one of those things that we don't get to experience that vibe (coughs) as much these days, but our little county fair, it's about 30 miles North and it's a whole thing. Any, any rural ag family will tell you fair week is a thing. You pack up everything you own. Most families stay at the fairgrounds. We stay in our horse trailer because uh, you have to be there to take care of the animals. And um, it's just special. It's a lot of work. It's exhausting, but it is just special. Um, and a, I know a lot of parents look forward to that as almost like kind of a vacation of sorts. It's not really a vacation vacation, but it's a change of scenery once a year. And it's just, it's just unique and special. And there's pig wrestling and there's contests and there's activities and there's the, the livestock shows and you're in there in the barns grooming and clipping and blow drying and showing and um, hanging out with friends. And it's just a really down home, wholesome event that I think a lot of home servers really enjoy. So if you're looking for that, if you're looking for that sense of community in your, as a family, and maybe you've struggled finding that 4-H could be an option for you as a homestead family, looking for that little uh, extra bit of activity. So to get started with 4-H, and this isn't a, an ad or anything, I'm not affiliated with a 4-H organization whatsoever, um, but October just so happens to be enrollment month. So number one, find a club. Number two, there's online enrollment. It's, I think it's free or it's super affordable. Um, you can sign your kids up and often websites can help you find clubs in your area. But, but I don't know, I've talked about this before, um, as we move into this new stage of homesteading and it kind of goes along with what I talked about with Shannon Hayes in that interview this last season, I guess this is a good topic to kind of tie a lot of these episodes together, but she talked about, uh, that moment when you're in your homesteading or your homemaking journey and you go from just being really centered on what's going on in your life and in your home and looking more outward. And for her, it was starting a restaurant or getting more in her community. And for us, it was buying a restaurant and really digging in deep. And 4-H and these sort of activities are one way to do that. And I've just been so enamored with that at this phase of our life. And maybe that's just the natural step. Maybe, maybe that's, this is how it's supposed to be. Maybe, um, maybe that chaos is good. And that's, that's a positive thing because, you know, during that initial middle stage, we started the homestead and then we're in that middle stage that Shannon talks about where we are so focused on learning the skills. That's when my children were toddlers. And so it was good for us to be home focused, but now we're in that third iteration where we're more outward focused, we're more community minded and, um, things like the soda fountain and 4-H 
and being more involved in our communities, I guess they all kind of go together. So maybe, maybe I did find a good conclusion <laughs> to this problem of mine. And I think that perhaps leaning into the chaos of the season, if you're in the season of being more outward focused, still homesteading, but also driving more or being in your community more, that's okay. Um, so from one mother to another who is trying to garden and keep the cows and drive her kids around, I see you and we will get through this. And I think it will be definitely a stage we look back on with fondness if we survive. So um, it's a good thing. So that's my episode for you today, friends, short and sweet. Just wanted to offer some rambling thoughts and a bit of solidarity. We'll figure it out, I'm sure. Um, also, a quick announcement for next season. Um, as usual, we take a break of a couple weeks and then we'll be back with the brand new season. And the theme is, I don't have a theme for it, actually. It is, I have topics I want to cover. I have some guests I want to have on. I have some ideas but they don't happen to fit into a nice tidy container this season. And I decided not to force them into into a container. So there will be a next season, but it will not have a fancy theme. And I think it will be okay because it will still be good and deep and all the old fashioned information that you love. So enjoy the little break. I'm going to gather my thoughts and get our plan and our next episodes recorded during the next few weeks. And I am excited to be back with you. Um, when we're ready to roll again. So as always, friends, thank you so much for being here. I was just checking the numbers of the podcast the other day. We're rolling up into 5 million downloads. That is insanity for this little old podcast talking about quaint little topics um, that are so very important. I am so honored to have you here. Thank you for uh, following and subscribing and sharing the episodes. It goes a long ways. And the message, I think it's spreading. I know it's spreading and it's a good thing. So take care, friends. Have a wonderful rest of your week. And we'll catch up on the next episode of the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast.